Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Jackie Moranti host of Cause of Death on the Darkcast Network. On my show, we usually discuss war, death, destruction, and disease. And, as you can imagine, my tastes are a bit on the dark side. So when I shop for unique novelties and gifts, I always keep an eye out for something a little out of the ordinary. That's why I shop at Batwings and Butterflies. Batwings and Butterflies is an independent, creator-owned, and operated boutique of handmade knit creations that run the gamut from the wild side to the dark side. Here, you'll find knit toys and stuffies like baby baphomets and giant tarantulas, household knits like blankets, doilies, and water pipe cozies. Every item is an original work of art, handmade with love by a talented artisan. Order your one-of-a-kind creations today. Find Batwings and Butterflies at batwingsandbutterflies.bigcartel.com or on Instagram at batwingsandbutterflies. My favorite product is the giant tarantula. The perfect thing for cold nights in the New Mexico desert. After all, eight arms are much better than just two. It's the perfect snuggle while listening to Cause of Death. Available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the Darkcast Network. Hey folks and welcome to the Tattoo Squid Podcast. I am your host, Dre, here to take you on a deep dive into the second season with interviews with other podcasters. We talk about movies like horror, action, comedy, and all different kinds of other stuff, like heavy metal, camping, comic books, board games, all that other stuff that you like to have fun with. Plus, also, you want to follow me, follow me on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, yeah, all that other stuff. Darkcast Network is where you will find... 20 wonderful shows that'll just blow your mind. We've got Fruit Loops, A Little Wicked, and Cause of Death. Murder, Murder News, and Gone But Never Forgotten will take your breath. Book of Lies, Autumn's Oddities, and Crime Nerds are sure to inspire. Freaky AF, California True Crime, and Reverie True Crime will be what you desire. And then they were gone. ODFM, October Pod VHS. Curly Conspiracies, Thrice Cursed, and The Jury Room will pass the test. Beyond the Rainbow, Brew Crime, and Over the Fence. Subscribe and listen to all of them. 
Of course, it makes perfect sense. Cause of Death portrays imagery of death, war, and destruction. It may not be suitable for children under the age of 13. Welcome to Cause of Death. I'm your host, Jackie Moranti. Some upcoming episodes are going to have a different tagline. We'll have the regular season episodes, then the more than ever you wanted to know episodes, and there will be a new tagline for some episodes that will be liberally sprinkled into the podcast. These will be called the 100 Seconds to Midnight episodes. These episodes are the ones that could drive us even closer to the apocalypse. If you think about it, all of season two were 100 seconds to midnight episodes. I'll talk about global warming and how it affects disease, the effect that ecology has on disease, and some social diseases that could make that clock tick down even further and faster. The first one will be coming soon. For today, I'm delving into the history of tetanus. Before we get into etiology and pathology, let's explore bacteria for a minute. Viruses are genetic material encased in a protein. A virus cannot survive on its own. It needs a host. Once the virus attaches to the host cell, it replicates until the host immunity can no longer fight it off. Bacteria, on the other hand, can live outside of the body. They're much bigger than viruses. They have all the genetic material to replicate without a host. They can live in soil or on surfaces for years. Which one is more dangerous? Well, that's up for debate, as far as I'm concerned. Most of the scientific community will say that viruses are more deadly because they invade your body than evade your immune system. That's fair, but let's think about bacteria for a second. Bacteria can come from anywhere. They can invade through the smallest of cuts on your finger. They're much harder to create vaccines for, and I'll talk about this later when I talk about tuberculosis. And they can evolve to become resistant to antibiotics. Think MRSA and VERSA. We know that antibiotics don't work against viruses, and antivirals don't work against bacterial infections. And I'll talk more about this when I talk about MRSA and VERSA. But for now, tetanus, etiology, and pathology. Clostridium tetani is a spore-forming, gram-positive, slender, anaerobic rod. The organism itself is very heat-sensitive and does not survive in the presence of oxygen. The spores, however, are resistant to heat and antiseptics. The spores can survive autoclaving at 249.8 degrees Fahrenheit or 121 degrees Celsius for 10 to 15 minutes 
and they are also resistant to phenol and other chemical agents. Tetanus spores can survive in their dormant state for years in soil and animal feces. When the dormant bacteria enter a wound, they encounter the perfect place to grow and divide. They then release a toxin called tetanospasmin. This toxin impairs the nerves in the body that control muscles. The incubation period for infection is usually 10 days. There are three types of infection, localized, cephalic, and generalized. Localized tetanus results in muscle spasms near the site of the wound. It's usually a less severe form of the disease, but can progress into generalized tetanus if left untreated. Cephalic tetanus is very rare and usually results from a head wound. Symptoms are weakened muscles in the face and spasms in the jaw muscles. It can also progress to generalized tetanus. The most common and life-threatening form of tetanus is generalized tetanus. Symptoms are gradual at first and then progress over the following two weeks or so after infection. Symptoms begin as muscle spasms and rigidity in the jaw. Therefore, it's called lockjaw. From there, it moves to the face where patients experience tension around the lips, resulting in risus sardonicus, or the death grin. It moves on to the neck where painful spasms and rigidity occur, causing difficulty in swallowing. It then moves to the abdominal muscles. Tetanus results in repeated seizure-like spasms that can last for several minutes. The neck and back will arch, the legs will become rigid, the arms draw up to the body, and the hands will clench. The muscle rigidity in the neck and abdomen may cause difficulties in breathing, and the spasms can also cause broken bones. The spasms can be caused by triggering events such as loud sounds, physical touch, a drafty room, or a light being turned on. The disease may also cause high or low blood pressure, pulmonary embolism, pneumonia, rapid heart rate, fever, extreme sweating, and eventually death. Usually, tetanus is diagnosed based on physical examination. The mortality rate of tetanus is around 40 to 50 percent. There is no cure for tetanus, only supportive care. Generally, this includes wound care, muscle relaxers, lots of muscle relaxers, vaccination, and antibiotics to relieve the symptoms. The patient is usually in an intensive care unit for the duration of treatment. The disease can progress for about two weeks, and recovery takes about a month. I'll talk a lot about the vaccine and why it helps with recovery and the history. Of course, tetanus is perfectly avoidable, so we can't ignore the vaccine. The best way to avoid tetanus is to be routinely vaccinated every 10 years. It is recommended that if you should be wounded in some way, you get vaccinated even if you don't remember when your last tetanus shot was. Puncture wounds are the worst. Any foreign object that enters your body, rusty nails, animal bites, stab wounds, gunshot wounds. Give me a break. I live in Albuquerque. It happens all the time down here. Or even just a little dirt in the wound can cause tetanus. Bottom line, get vaccinated. I'll quickly go over the vaccination schedule for DTaP, 
but I covered it in the last episode on diphtheria, so it'll be really quick. DTAP is recommended for children at 2 months, 4 months, 6 months, 15 to 18 months, 4 to 6 years, 11 to 12 years, and every 10 years after that for life. A booster is also recommended during the third trimester of pregnancy, regardless of the mother's vaccination schedule. Worldwide, the most common causes of tetanus are in neonates in countries where vaccines are unavailable. There is no risk in receiving extra boosters for tetanus. Okay. Now on to the part that you really want to hear, the history of tetanus. Tetanus has been around for a good solid minute. There are known documents with tetanus symptoms noted from as early as 3000 BC in ancient Egypt. The writings from 1500 BC showed that people understood the nature of the disease and that it came from an open wound, but they had no way to treat it. Petroglyphs from this time show depictions of people suffering from severe muscle spasms. Early Chinese documentation from about 300 B.C. talk about needling the patient above the ears to cure tetanus. Hippocrates had the idea that if the patient were wrapped in oil-soaked cloths and forced to drink strong wine, they could sweat it out. During the Renaissance, doctors would cover the patient in manure to cure tetanus. That would be contraindicated. <laughs> In 1806, Sir Charles Bell painted a famous depiction of a man dying from tetanus entitled Tetanus Following Gunshot Wounds. Dr. Bell volunteered to study gunshot wounds during the Battle of Karuna. During that time, he said that his experience was completely devoted to amputating the limbs of the wounded. While Dr. Bell sketched many patients on the battlefield, Tetanus following gunshot wounds has become his most well-known. This is the picture that I've used for the artwork for this episode. I haven't talked a lot about germ theory, so we're going to delve into that a little bit. There are a few names that you'll hear over and over again as we talk about disease history, and two of those names are Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch. These two gentlemen are right up there with Jenner on the geek heroes list. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Robert Koch did the first experiments with germ theory. The idea had been kicked around for centuries, but Koch was the first to actually experiment with animals and really nail down the theory that certain germs caused certain diseases. He started his experimentation in the late 1800s when he began to experiment with anthrax. He pulled blood from cattle that had died of anthrax and looked at it under the microscope. What he saw was the rod-shaped bacteria that caused the disease. 
He suspected that this was what caused the cattle to die. He then injected mice with the blood from the cattle, and he saw that the mice also got anthrax. This simple but vital experiment led Koch to form Koch's postulates. There are four postulates. Number one, the disease must be found in diseased but not healthy individuals. Number two, the microorganism must be cultured from the diseased individual. Number three, inoculation of a healthy individual with the cultured microorganism must replicate the disease found in the diseased individual. Number four, the microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased individual and matched to the original organism. These rules are still used today when we talk about figuring out whether or not an individual or a group of individuals have a particular disease. We can also figure out how to pass that disease along to other individuals, then figure out how to cure it or inoculate against it. Shortly after Koch announced his postulates, Louis Pasteur announced his research claiming that small organisms existed in the world. These organisms were called germs, and these germs could invade the body and cause disease. Before germ theory was a thing, it was thought that everything from evil spirits to bad air caused disease. Now, granted, there is something to be said for polluted air and water as the cause of disease, and we will get into that. Those 100 Seconds to Midnight episodes are all about that kind of thing. 1884 was the year that Giorgio Rotone and Antonio Carle would be the first to produce tetanus in animals by injecting them with pus from a human with the disease. That same year, German internist Arthur Nicolier injected animals with soil samples, and the animals got tetanus. These were both very important finds. While it was suspected way back in ancient Egypt that tetanus was caused by something in the soils, these experiments proved that. In 1889, Japanese bacteriologist Shibasaburo Kitasoto, remember him from diphtheria research? He isolated the bacteria from the blood of an infected person and injected the isolate into an animal to reproduce the disease. While this would seem to be the same thing that Rotone and Carle did, they didn't isolate the bacterium from the pus of the infected person. This combined with the fact that replication is a must when performing experiments of this type gave Kitasato's research legs. Now, Kitasato could take his research one step further to prove that tetanus was caused by a toxin. And he could also prove that the toxin could be neutralized by specific antibodies. This would be the first vaccine for passive immunology. The following year, Danish researcher Nude Faber filtered cultures and injected animals with the filtrate. This produced tetanus in the animals he injected, proving the existence of a toxin. In 1893, two separate experiments were conducted. 
Edmond Nocard, a French microbiologist and veterinarian, successfully cured horses suffering from tetanus by using the serum therapy discovered by Kitasoto. This experiment demonstrated passive immunization. Also in France, bacteriologist Pierre-Paul Emile Roux and his colleague L.N. Villard found that they could attenuate the tetanus toxin by treating it with an iodine-potassium iodide solution. This would lead to the first attenuated vaccine against tetanus. Edmund Nocard demonstrated the effects of passively transferred antitoxin in humans using equine antiserum in 1897. This would be used as a prophylaxis treatment during the First World War. In 1902, Marie Amorax attempted to track the pathway that the toxin followed during infection. This would be demonstrated by various research over the next several years. World War I started in 1914. Anti-tetanus serum would be introduced to the soldiers of this war, and the incidence rate would fall dramatically. During the First World War, men were subjected to fighting in extremely dirty conditions. This was a trench war. Soldiers were exposed to tetanus and gas gangrene through wounds. Between August and October of 1914, German military hospitals of the 15th Army Corps reported 1,744 cases of tetanus among 27,677 wounded soldiers. In October alone, the British Army reported tetanus in 32 of every 1,000 soldiers. By 1917, Valet and Basie began to vaccinate the wounded during the war with toxin that had been inactivated by iodine treatment. While the serum didn't work as a cure for tetanus, it did work as a prophylaxis. Demand for the serum became great, and both sides of the front line began to depend on sources from neutral countries to supply it. Park Davis Laboratories was one of the suppliers. Recall that the U.S. remained neutral until December of 1917, so we were able to provide serum to both sides of the war. Over 600 horses were bred and immunized in order to fulfill the huge demand. These horses were immunized with increasing doses of C. tetani culture bullion every eight days until, quote, no reaction to the culture is manifested and the blood shows the highest number of immunity units obtainable from that individual animal, end quote. During this time, it would be almost impossible to keep the antitoxin cold. But in 1911, the Institut Pasteur installed a gas refrigerator to store antidiphtheric and antitetanatic serum. More than likely, on the front lines of the war, drugs that were intended to use in the trenches would be stored either in ambient temperatures or possibly buried in the ground. Since immunoglobulins are known for their high stability and resistance to proteolysis, this would work. There were stability tests done on bottles of tetanus antisera that were recovered from the battlefield after 25 years that showed that the IgG was still stable. More recently, a bottle of antisera was recovered in 2020 and tested. 
That bottle still had active IgG, but it was no longer stable enough to protect mice against tetanus toxin. In 1923, French veterinarian and biologist Gaston Ramon prepared the first antigenic toxoid using formaldehyde and heat treatment of the tetanus toxin. This would be considered the first inactivated tetanus toxoid to be discovered and produced. He would do the same with diphtheria toxin. That same year, British immunologist Alexander Glenny perfected the method of inactivation of tetanus toxin using formaldehyde. The following year, P. Desombey produced the tetanus toxoid that would be used during World War II for the U.S. military. Two years later, Gaston Ramon and Christian Zeller would successfully immunize people against tetanus using Descombe's tetanus toxoid. By 1933, the tetanus toxoid was licensed as a treatment in the U.S. In 1937, it was licensed as a vaccine. By 1941, a large-scale rollout began for mass administration of the American military forces. Vaccination records would be stamped on the soldiers' dog tags and appear in paper records that would be kept as proof that they had received the vaccine. Interestingly enough, the German army would rely solely on treatment with antitoxin, and that army would suffer much higher losses from tetanus. By 1953, the combination of diphtheria and tetanus toxins would be licensed for adults in the U.S. The United Kingdom implemented routine vaccination in 1961. Italy would introduce routine vaccination for newborns in 1968. By 1974, WHO would include the DTP, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine, into their expanded program on immunization. It wouldn't be until 1975 that a Soviet scientist, Gregory N. Krzyznowski, would define tetanus as a polysystematic disease due to the implication of other organic systems in the effect of tetanus toxin. He would also define its effect on the central nervous system. The World Health Organization began collecting data on DTP-3 vaccine in 1980. All regions, with the exception of the Americas and Europe, were found to have less than a 20% vaccination rate. In 1983, the first side effect was reported. A 19-year-old man was found to have medium vessel vasculitis related to a receipt of tetanus and BCG vaccines. BCG is the vaccine for tuberculosis. And tuberculosis is coming next season, so we'll be talking a lot about BCG. For those of you who've been waiting to hear about my six years in TB research, yep, wait no longer. In 1989, the 42nd World Health Assembly called for the global elimination of neonatal tetanus by 1995. Elimination is defined as less than one case per 1,000 live births in every district of every country worldwide. Of course, this goal was not met, and it hasn't been met up to the present. 
the World Summit for Children announced this goal again in 1990. The summit was supported by the 44th World Health Assembly. In 1996, Letterle Laboratories received licensing for the combination of diphtheria and tetanus toxoids combined with acellular pertussis for use as the first through fifth doses of the series. This is what we call DTAP today. I'll explain acellular pertussis in the next episode. British Pharma, SmithKline Beecham, received license for their DTaP vaccine for the first four doses in a series in 1997. Other pharmas would follow with licenses for their DTaP vaccines over the next several years. UNICEF, WHO, and the UNFPA reviewed the progress toward global tetanus elimination in 1999. The initiative became a priority with maternal tetanus elimination added. The target date was elimination by 2005. This date would be pushed out to 2015 and then would be pushed out again to 2022. I don't think it's going to happen during 2022. From the year 2000 to 2007, the United States would report 31 cases of tetanus per year. In 2003, there were only 21 cases reported in the United States. GlaxoSmithKline, a British pharmaceutical company, received licensing in 2002 for a vaccine that combined diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis, inactivated polio, and hepatitis B antigens. This vaccine was called Pediarix. This vaccine has not been approved for use in the U.S. due to their vaccine scheduling and questions about efficacy and safety. The U.S. would approve use of GlaxoSmithKline's DTaP vaccine, Boostrix, in 2011. Boostrix is given to older people who are due for their vaccines. WHO African region reported the highest number of non-neonatal tetanus cases in 2013. That year saw 3,732 cases in Africa. Southeast Asia reported 4,342 cases that year. Uganda was supporting male circumcision to prevent the spread of HIV at the time. The incidence of tetanus climbed to 2,522 cases during that campaign. These were the highest case numbers on the continent. A report from 2015 showed that neonatal tetanus remained a major public health concern in 23 countries. Afghanistan, Angola, Cambodia, Central African Republic, Chad, Congo DR, Equatorial Guinea, Ethiopia, Haiti, India, Indonesia, Iraq, Kenya, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, Philippines, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, and Yemen. At the same time, WHO estimated that 34,019 newborns died from neonatal tetanus that year. This was a 96% reduction from the late 1980s. 
Think about that for just a minute. A 96% reduction. 37,019 babies died from tetanus. As of 2019, Asia and Africa are still reporting the highest incidence rates of tetanus across all age groups, with 17,816 and 16,321, respectively. In the diphtheria episode, I talked about why it's so hard to get vaccines to these places. I don't know who needs to hear that rant, but it's there if you want to hear how lucky you are to have access to vaccines. And podcasts. And podcasts about vaccines. So that's tetanus. Next time, I'll talk about pertussis. That one will be very personal for me, as I had a very close friend who died of the disease several years ago. You'll get to hear about my buddy Russ, a bit about his life and his battle with pertussis. Before we get to the Q&A portion, I'm calling out Joe Rogan on his promise to bring better information about COVID-19 to his podcast. Joe, if you're listening to this, Put your money where your mouth is. I would love to be a guest on your show. I can tell you all about what researchers are facing and have faced during the last two years dealing with COVID. Give a holler. I'd love to talk about it. I also need to give a quick shout out to my dear friend, Claire. I love to poke fun at my friends during my show. And last episode, I gave Claire a little boost. She called me to tell me that she enjoyed the mention so much that she laughed for a solid 10 minutes. And after that, she immediately raised her Patreon membership. I'm making a coffee mug in her honor. Last but not least, I can't forget to thank my very dear friend, mentor, fellow podcaster, and the guy that I just hang out with all the time, Eric Carter-Londine, for allowing me to use his beautiful, and wonderfully acoustic studio. Thank you, Eric, so much. You know how dear you are to me. Everyone, go listen to True Consequences. Season 5 is starting. This season is going to cover Dylan Redwine. That case is gut-wrenching. Okay, now on to the Q&A. I had a message from a listener in Australia. Sue messaged me one night last week, sounding a bit frightened. I got her message the following morning and shot her a quick answer, but I feel that I need to give more information. Thank you so much for contacting me, Sue. I'm sorry I couldn't talk with you more, but please, if you have more questions, feel free to contact me again. Sue said, I love your podcast. Thank you. Your knowledge and delivery of each episode is also very entertaining. I have a question, and I apologize that it has to do with COVID. Sue, I don't care what it has to do with. You just go ahead and ask, and I will answer. I'm triple vaxxed and recently had my child vaxxed. I believe, like so many others, that we bounce between informative links that try to convince us both ways for and against getting the vaccine. 
And that, combined with many conspiracy theories out there, that is getting difficult to differentiate between fact and fiction. I agree. This decision that has lifelong effects. May I ask, what is your take on the FDA withholding Pfizer vaccine safety documents, namely the supportive documentation, in order for the U.S. government to approve the license for Pfizer to sell and market its COVID vaccine. This information is under freedom of information, however, is currently being withheld and currently in the courts in which Aaron Siri is currently taking on the federal government to release this information. If you are interested in this info, I heard this on the Cheryl Atkinson podcast, episode 24th, December 2021. It also states that the FDA gave Pfizer the emergency use authorization prior to the FDA standards determined the vaccine to be safe and effective. This, I'm sure, would only feed the non-vaccine movement, particularly as it has become mandated. I won't lie, information like this scares the crap out of me, and I'm seriously thinking if getting vaccinated was the wrong thing to do. Kindest regards, Suzanne. Well, Suzanne, let me tell you, that information would scare the crap out of me, too, if I didn't know better. I've attached several links in the show notes to all of the safety data for every vaccine that has been approved. The safety data is out there. I sent Suzanne a very quick message the following morning. I was running late for work, but I felt that I needed to respond hepschnell, so I took a minute to do that. The first thing I sent was the link to the CDC website showing the safety information in all of its glory. Ms. Atkinson is right, but she's also very wrong. She hasn't done her homework very well at all. Yes, there are FOIAs on the vaccines. Bear with me, because I'm going to go one step at a time. The FDA has always had and always will have access to the safety and efficacy information on any drug that they approve. No pharma can hide this information from any government agency, nor can they hide it from the general public. I've attached the links to all of the safety data in the show notes, because I know that as sure as I'm sitting here, someone else or several someones want to ask the same question. They just haven't done it yet. The FDA demands certain things from any pharmaceutical company, any clinical research organization, any lab, and any other agency working on an experimental drug. And when the FDA comes a knocking, boy, you better have that information at your fingertips. You don't have days or even hours to produce it. You have 15 minutes or less. If they don't get all of the information they're seeking, they will shut the entire lab down. It's a violation of federal law to avoid giving them anything that they want, including trade secrets. This is where the FOIA protection starts and ends. Trade secrets are covered by FOIA and patents. That information stays within the confines of the research until the patent runs out. But the FDA still gets this information. 
Anyone who sees that information is bound by confidentiality agreements, including the FDA. But the one thing that they definitely have to release is safety and efficacy data. All the FOIA does is keep other pharmas from stealing the research because, well, scientists are historically notorious for stealing research. It happens a lot. Keep listening, and I'll tell you all about how research was stolen, particularly in the discovery of the double helix of DNA. Pharmaceutical companies and CROs are governed by a plethora of alphabet soups of acronyms to keep the general public and our subjects safe. Whether those subjects be animals or humans, we are accountable for every experiment we do. The scrutiny gets more rigorous the higher up the food chain you go. So don't worry about the safety of these vaccines. mRNA isn't new. It's been around for years. We just didn't know how great a tool it would be until COVID came along. Thank you again for writing, Suzanne. I appreciate you. I also appreciate you trusting me with this question because it's a tough one. And that information would scare the crap out of me, too. I don't blame you one bit. It's also a prime example of the way that misinformation is causing fear and dissolution all over the world. If you like the show, tell a friend. Get the word out. My listeners are why I do this. If any of you have questions, please don't hesitate to contact me. I can be found on Facebook and Instagram at Cause of Death and on Twitter at Cause of Death 10. I'm always happy to hear from you. I'm going to put the rest of my links in the show notes from now on. So if you'd like to support the show by dropping a review or becoming a patron, you can find the information there. It'll force you to read ahead. Thank you again for listening to Cause of Death. And until next time, stay safe, get vaccinated, and try to promote accurate information. My name is Nancy Mello, and I am the Creature Preacher, and I'm going to tell you what your animal has been trying to say. Nancy, I am freaking out right now because I did not share any of this information, and you are spot on all this stuff. Who am I going to be talking to for you today? Jonathan the Giant Tortoise, who is the oldest known living land animal in the world. Creature Preacher from Rococo Punch. <laughs>